We are in the middle of a series. We're just over halfway through a series in which we're taking the Beatitudes, which is the words of Jesus kind of a, that um, clarified the main point of his message. And we are looking at those words through the idea of, uh, of how to find freedom, freedom particularly from addictions. Now, one of the things that might already put a, you know, be a question in your mind is, well, I don't feel very addicted. I, I don't do drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Uh, we, from what we've studied, it seems as though uh, addiction is an anxiety disorder. And it's a way to cope with our lives without faith or love. And so I think all of us, it's a universal truth that all of us suffer, I think, with anxiety. And the ways that we cope with that anxiety outside of trusting in Jesus really become addictions. They become crutches that we lean on in order to compensate for our lack of love and trust in God. The road that we have been looking at has been a... Uh, you know, I looked, I looked over the last number of, uh, number of weeks, and it's heavy. We, uh, we started with saying that if we're going to find freedom, we need to, uh, we need to practice humility and uh, be honest about where we're at. Then we looked at grieving, how we've hurt God and others. We talked about how we need to trust in Jesus and not rely on ourselves that the, way, the reason why we would want to move out of an addictive or anxious life is really to be able to better love others, not just ourselves. Last week, we looked at the idea of mercy and how we need to have a forgiving heart. And so I'm looking at all that, and I'm going, like, good luck. Like, that's just a, that's a whack of stuff that's really, really hard to do. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking this week, like, you know, the, the next one is blessed are the poor in heart. So great, now we have to talk about our hearts and our hearts even have to be good in all this. And it just seemed like it was this overwhelming task in front of us to find freedom. And so uh, this, is where my mind, this is where my mind went to. That I am, I, so first of all, I imagine us then, we go, okay, we go to church every week and we hear hard things and how we need to change. All right. And then I had this flashback to being in junior high school in Port Alberni. And uh, I had a, a PE teacher, Mr. O'Gorman. It, that sounds like a PE teacher. He was strong and intimidating. Uh, we would play rugby. And as soon as he had the ball, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> And he would just saunter on through. Nobody was going to touch that guy. Um, and so he, he sits down with me after gym class. And he gives me one of those, you know, pep talks. So I'm this uh, skinny kid with a high voice, uh, mostly insecure. And he sits me down. And he says, Greg, um, you're never going to play rugby. You'll never play basketball. You'll never do football. You're not tall enough for volleyball. He just goes on and on through all the sports. And then he, uh, it's not this one, but he gives me, he gives me a badminton racket. It's light. And so he says, uh, he says, try this. <clears throat> now, I took him seriously. I thought, I can't do anything else. I might as well play badminton. And so I threw myself uh, into this sport. This, uh, this, this is my original racket that I bought. 
I think for $25. Uh, so it's a 50-year-old racket. I shouldn't have said that. It's a 10-year-old racket. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, but the, so, uh, so I, uh, I went three times a week in the club that uh, Mr. O'Gorman was, uh, was leading in. He was my coach. I went to, um, you know, I just went to a whole bunch of other clubs. I just took it very seriously. Now, I'm getting coached on how to do badminton. So when, you, uh, when I first got there, I held the racket like this. And it was, you know, you're playing like this. Imagine being in your backyard. And so he first of all said that you need to hold it like this. You can do this with your wrist. I thought, well, that was a new thought. And, uh, and then he says, I'm going to teach you how to do a backhand. So when I used to do a backhand, which was like this, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I could barely get it over the net, uh, like just over the net. And so he told me, well, what you, like this is over many, many weeks. He says, first of all, you need to face away from the net, which didn't, this was already not counterintuitive, and facing away from the net didn't make any sense. And he says, then I want, what I want you to do, I won't, so you can see it, you reach across your body, and you put your weight on your outside foot, and you keep your, you keep your elbow high, and you do one of those. And... Uh, by the end of a, I don't know how, how long, I could clear the bird from one end of the court to the other end of the court without much effort, just by doing it right. Well, that was really fun. And then we worked on other shots. And then we had to do footwork. And then we had to do uh, strength training and fitness. And it just goes on and on. So uh, I'm a little kid. And every, almost every day, because I went as often as I could, I'm getting corrected all the time. I'm just being told how to change all the time and loving every minute of it. I thought, this is, this is excellent. I was horrible at badminton and you helped me get better at badminton. This is, this is just fantastic. Is there anything else you want to tell me? And I go, why is that different? Why is it when somebody tells me how to swing a silly racket, I'm super happy about it. Somebody tells me how to better follow Jesus and I feel discouraged and overwhelmed and, uh, you know, like it's just this heavy burden. And then I thought about school. If you do post, you have, I mean, you have to go to school until grade 12, at least most of us. And, uh, but, you know, post-secondary education, if, you, if you've done that, you are, uh, you're paying a lot of money, putting in a lot of time, and you're being corrected every day for hours a day. You're being corrected. It's called learning, right? Like you're, especially if you're an undergrad, you're dumb. <laughs> and then we're going we're gonna to teach you stuff. And we're going to make you a different kind of person. And we all go, yeah, I want to do that. I want to be corrected every day for five hours a day. And then do homework. And yeah, yeah, I want to do it. Can I pay money for that? Would you mind? And it's just so interesting to me that there's these pockets of our life where correction and improvement are experienced to good news and then at other times it just feels like bad news. What is the difference between those two kinds of experiences? More particularly looking at Christianity, when does the Christian journey of growth become good news? When does that happen? How does it happen? I think Matthew 5, verse 8, is an interlude in the middle of the Beatitudes. 
And it's perfectly placed. Because we've been going through all these different things to change. And then along comes this verse, and this is what it says. And it sounds like the rest of the verses, but I think it's different. That's what we'll work through today. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. So, again, flashback to Monday. I'm reading this, and I'm going, great. I mean, it's just getting worse. Now we have to have a pure heart in all the things that we were doing. The idea of a pure heart is undivided, you see on the screen, undivided devotion to a person or goal. Someone is pure when they have an undivided heart. They are focused on one thing and wanting to accomplish one thing or be with a particular person. It's not mixed. It's pure. There's, there's undivided devotion. Because it's a pure heart, it's not devotion just externally. It's that our heart is committed to something. For they will see God. This is the vision. That I want to see God. I long to see God. And so I am, I am committing myself to, to that longing to the exclusion of other things that I would do with my life. So, you know, I, I think about this sport. I had a pure heart. I had undivided devotion to a vision. I watched, you know, I was in grade eight. I watched the grade teners play, and it was amazing. And since I couldn't do anything else, I, uh, I took it up. I had, I had undivided devotion. Uh, what's been fun to watch is, uh, is, you know, we've gone through a number of weddings. We've had, th- we had three in one year, and we have, you know, people in our home who are fr- freshly in love and all those kinds of things, really fun. And so it's, it's interesting to watch somebody uh, be in a romantic relationship. Uh, time, money, energy, happily disposed of <laughs> just how can I lavish it's, it's, it's beautiful and nobody is, is counting it just feels free and extravagant I think about work and how work can just be an incredible burden and then it, it, I think this is when it's particularly a, a burden is when we have a divided heart, which I think is this. I not only, I, I work, yeah, but what I'm really here for is the paycheck. If you have an undivided heart at work, work is a horrible experience. But if you can figure out how your work is actually, uh, if you have a vision, a compelling vision, you're willing to put in energy and to be undivided in your commitment to whatever you're doing, and that somehow transforms what would be labor into joy and opportunity. So what then is our vision? If you would describe yourself as a Christian, what is the vision of a Christian? We read it in the verse. It's to see God. Um, I thought worship was so powerful today. 
Because what was being offered us was a vision to encounter the living God. And I've been a Christian now for over, over 50 years. And I am enraptured by him. I remember again growing up in a small town. If you grew up in a small town in, uh, <clears throat> in BC at least, you were into what's called muscle cars. And uh, there we go. We got one person who knows what that is. So, uh, you know, old cars that you would, uh, you'd fix up and you would go, go broke repairing is what mostly was going on, at least in my life. <clears throat> so I had a 67 Dodge Dart, which I thought was a super cool car. I had a 67 Camaro. And I would study these things and fix them and repair them. And then I was into Porsches for a while. And I, I would just, you know, I would look at statistics and read reports on it and I was just so it's a piece of metal it's just a well it's some plastic and uh, and I'm enamored by it and then I discover the beauty of Jesus and it's been decades and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of his glory and majesty and beauty he is magnificent. And I can't stop reading about him, wanting to be close to him and know him. I have what at least the, you know, the leadership literature describes as a compelling vision. I long to see God. Psalm 23 describes it this way. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? Who, who may see God and encounter God? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Uh, who gets to see God? Those who purely want to. You know, God is such a respecter of persons. He says, if you don't want to see me, you won't. It's okay. But those who do, those who have an undivided longing and devotion to see me, I'll disclose myself to you and you'll discover my beauty and strength. Unfaithfulness is a sign of devotion to self, not to God. You think of somebody who's in a relationship and they cheat. What does that, what does that, what does that tell us about that unfaithful person? It tells us that the reason why they were in that relationship was really for self-serving purposes. And as soon as that relationship was disappointing, they just did something on the side. It, uh, unfaithfulness clarifies the motive of the heart. That this really wasn't about you, it was about me. And for as long as you satisfy me, I'll be devoted to you, but it really is about me. God says, why am I gonna, why am I gonna, expose myself to someone who's just mostly interested in taking advantage of me. I've revealed myself to those who truly want to know me, not just for their own benefit, but for ours. This is what it means to have a pure heart. I think, again, you know, when you talk about these things, I just can't help but think about my marriage. And I think about the... Um, the 
the only word that I can think of is the, is the holiness of knowing another person, of knowing another person intimately. And uh, there's no way that you can know someone intimately with an impure heart. It's an impossibility. You can't see them. You're too busy seeing your own needs or agenda. or You can't see them. But as you truly want to know them for their benefit, there's something beautiful that happens in the relationship. And you discover, I think, the beauty and presence of God in another human being. But here we have the opportunity to discover God firsthand, to know him and see him as he is. How then do we get a pure heart? How does purity happen? The first thing that we do is we ask for it. Psalm 51 says, create in me, this is a prayer, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast, faithful, pure spirit in me. We ask for it. Uh, somebody, I, I forget who I was talking to this week, but we were, uh, we were talking about the, the mystery of love and how, uh, you know, does a, does a relationship choose you or do you choose the relationship? It was that kind of, uh, kind of discussion. And there's something mysterious that it seems as though uh, um, being devoted maybe in common language, falling in love, is something that you receive, not something that you earn or manipulate. And I think that somehow, in a more profound way, this is true from God, is that he actually gives us the ability to be devoted to him. How does he respond? Exodus 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm gonna give you a heart of devotion. I'm gonna draw close to you in such a way that you would long to draw close to me and be faithful to me, just as I am going to be faithful to you. A pure heart is a gift to be received, not a goal to be achieved. You can't, you can't make love happen, but you can receive it. And this is what God longs to give every one of us. If you feel distant from God, if you feel like you don't know him, he feels far away, unapproachable, ask him. Ask him for a heart that, uh, where you could see him, where you could be devoted to him, and he would show himself to you. This is the promise given in Matthew 5. But I think many of us here have been a Christian for a while, and there's a second problem. The first problem is that we might not have a heart that's devoted to God. And that first is to be born again, to receive a new heart. I remember the, I remember the morning after I became a Christian, and I knew my heart was different. I knew I was different. I loved God. Something happened inside of me. I was born again. I had a new spirit in me. And I longed to love and please God. But sometimes that love and devotion can grow cold. Sometimes God feels very far away. And it just feels, again, tiring. Tiring to come to church, tiring to read our Bible. What's the point? 
Matthew 24 talks about how our hearts grow cold, is that we look at the world around us and we go, wow. First of all, it looks like uh, people who don't follow Jesus are doing just fine. And I'm trying so hard, and is it really worth it? Do I really see anything change? I don't feel known. I just feel like I'm working hard. How does our hearts get warmed again? How does that happen? I'd like to present to you an idea that I think is personally helpful, and I think it's rooted in Scripture, and it's simply this that our hearts are warmed through what we're describing as restful worship. Restful worship. When our heart is quiet, we remember our deepest longings. Now, remember how he said that addiction is an anxiety disorder. That when we're anxious, we're just running around frantically doing things, trying to control our lives, make sense of the chaos, at least try to find a pathway forward. It's anxiety. Addiction is rooted in anxiety. And so our freedom out of that is to be quiet. And in quietness, we remember our deepest longings. There's something about the power of quiet where our our mind and our heart quietens down and we remember what is true what our heart has truly longed for. And it's there that we find connection with God again. Thomas Merton is a, uh, or was, I mean, he's passed away, was a Trappist monk. Here's what he says. Without contemplation, without the intimate, silent, secret pursuit of truth through love, our action loses itself in the world and becomes dangerous. Without the ability to have a, to have a quiet heart, Even our service of Jesus becomes suspect and dangerous because now it too is frantic work. This may sound strange, but I think it's possible to be addicted to Christian service and to Christian behaviors in the hope that if we can just read our Bible more and pray harder and really mean it this time and attend all of the things that need to be attended and that, that somehow if I do it all right, I'll get closer to God. And all that happens is we just become more self-righteous, enslaved to behaviors that aren't about love at all and really is about trying to quiet the condemnation and the anxiety and the trouble that attacks our souls. And it's then, without a pure heart of devotion and delight, that Christian activity becomes heavy and we're burdened by further input. We don't want to hear what our coach says. We don't want to hear another sermon because we've been trying so hard and nothing ever changes. There's a prayer in Psalm 73 that I find to be very helpful that describes what I think restful worship looks like. The first, uh, verses 12 and 13 say this. This is, this is a prayer. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. This is what the wicked are like. They're doing great. They have way more money than I do, carefree, never have to worry about all the obligations that I feel. 
Like I have to keep my elbow up, turn the right way, flick my wrist at the right time, goes on and on and on. I don't have to worry about any of that. They're just free. I can swing the racket any way they want. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. It doesn't seem to have paid off. And have washed my hands in innocent. And then he goes on in verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory to see God face to face. He works it through. It feels like a waste of, ah. But my heart longs for you. And when I'm quiet, I know it's true. And I know that you will fulfill the longings of my heart. And I love how honest he goes on to be. Whom I, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You know, I just got a pause. I printed out my notes this morning, and every capital I is missing. <laughs> so I have to read them in my notes and remember where the eyes are. Isn't that an incredible thing? I mean, I have, if there's a curse of technology on my life, I think it's true. The eyes are missing. So anyways. Yet I am always with you. I'm pretty sure the eye is there. Yet I am always with you. I hold your breath. Um, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. I love this. That my flesh and my heart may fail. I'm not putting confidence in my pure heart. I'm not trusting in my pure heart. They may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful, impure to you, unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I love the journey of looking at the world, feeling blinded by what we would describe as reality in somebody working their heart through to worship. I just think that's such a beautiful journey. And in the quiet of worship, we remember what's true. When I was, um, there was a number of us uh, from the church, we were able to go to South Africa to this world conference. And we're worshiping, as you heard already, we're worshiping with 70 nations from around the world. Glorious, inspiring speaking, and just uh, the presence of God, so beautiful. We're flying back home, and uh, I'm in my cramped little seat, and I, I hear uh, a barrage of thoughts that I could, I could barely uh, track, but they were along the lines of, um, you're such a hypocrite. I can't believe that you would actually let yourself be a pastor. I think you should quit immediately um, because no one like you deserves uh, for sure to hold a mic, let alone counsel anybody personally. Uh, And you've always been this way. And it just went on and on and on. Debbie looks at me and she says, what's going on? And I I couldn't even verbalize uh, the the barrage of attack 
that was coming on me. I couldn't, I couldn't even grab hold of one of those thoughts. It was just a pervasive condemnation. And so all I could do inside my head was speak in tongues. It's all I, I could just, I couldn't even articulate anything to even tell Debbie what was going on. And so I speak in tongues and I fall asleep and I wake up refreshed. I'm just free. And it's like it never happened. There are times when I'm sleeping that I feel a demonic weight on my chest and I feel a hand on my mouth and I can't speak. I can't worship. I can't cry out for help. All I can do is I, the one thing I can do is speak in tongues. And it lifts. I'm not doing anything. I'm not earning anything. I'm not confessing the truth. I'm quietly worshiping in a desperate place. And Jesus meets me in those places. There's something about quiet worship that I believe is irreplaceable. I love worshiping here with you. It is just, it is so strengthening, orienting, and encouraging. And uh, that is not enough for me. In order for me to work through my anxiety, I need to be quiet. I need to be quiet and worship my Father with very few words. With nothing that is proving anything. You've heard me say, perhaps if you've been around the church for a while, I'm a very productive person. I love work. I love working hard. I love accomplishing things. Debbie says to me often at the end of the day, so how many things did you tick off of your list? And first of all, she knows that I have a list, and it's true, I did tick a bunch of things off. And I just, I just love, I just love it. So I describe my daily Bible reading. This is how I describe it, and I, I don't mean to be blasphemous. But I describe it as a waste of time. Because I want a time in my day that doesn't serve any functional purpose except to be with my father. That's all, I just wanna be with my father. I wanna be alone with him. I wanna be quiet with him. I barely pray with words. I'm just quiet with my father. And it's the only way that I know of to quiet my mind, to be free from anxiety, to be free from the things that would try to pull me in and addict me and call me away. Um, I was thinking uh, Doug Penner, Jacob Stevens' dad, uh, he, uh, uh, we planted this church together, he and I and a few other families. Uh, if it wasn't for him, I don't think we would be here. And a very good friend. And um, uh, he's, uh, uh, if you know anything about the Penners, they're all disgustingly good at sports. It's super, super irritating. If you want to feel good about your athletic ability, don't play sports with them. And I think they got it, at least from their dad, probably their mom too. And um, so he was, he played uh, volleyball at UBC. 
and uh, he's good at it. Well, there was, he tells me the story one time. There was this one uh, particular shot. I don't know anything about volleyball. It was a hitting the ball a certain way. And, uh, and, he wasn't, uh, and he wasn't very good at it. And there was a game that night. And so what the coach had the team do was set up Doug with a shot that he was really good at. And he just nailed a whole bunch of these shots. What's going on there? What I think is a profound thought, and I think this coach is tremendously insightful, is uh, sometimes you just need to enjoy the game again. You just need to enjoy the game. I have, uh, I can't tell you the amount, and I'm sure that your life is exactly the same as mine. I have so many things going on in my mind. I don't know how many different people in different continents and cities I talked to this week. And it's just, it just is so overwhelming. And I need to remember how I love Jesus. And he is the only one that has captured my heart. And I have to be back there with him again or all of my work is dangerous as Thomas Merton would say. It's vain work. It's distracting work. It's anxious work. One of the great things about being uh, being married to Debbie is that she can tell the difference, uh, much to my frustration, between when I'm working anxiously and when I'm not. Because for sure, I'm always doing the work of the Lord, aren't I? Can I get an amen? And uh, nope, turns out I'm not. And she will say to me, that's just anxious work. It's just anxious work. You don't need to do that. I could have sworn I needed to do that. No, you don't need to do that. And the only way that I can begin to parse out what's anxious and what isn't, my friends, is when I'm quiet. And I feel like you and I live in a world that is screaming in our ear constantly. Constantly. Mostly condemnation, pressure, expectation, and demand. And you've got a few short years in this world to make a difference, and you call yourself a Christian, you better get to work. And you better have a meaningful job. You better do important things. You better try hard. Like it just goes on and on and on. And listen now. I, I know, I, I know there's other Bible verses that I can quote, but Clever arguments don't get me out of condemnation. Quiet worship does. Quiet worship does. I can't talk my way out. Most of the time I feel muzzled. Quiet worship. What's the result? Lusts lose their luster. When you've seen the living God and just just tasted, just tasted of his beauty. I'm reading through uh, Mark uh, this last week and they touch the hem of his garment. Just a, just a touch and they're healed. Just a touch of the beauty of God and our hearts are changed. Then the enemy comes along with, some, with something to lust after and it's like, really? That's all you got? I've tasted of the goodness of God. 
when we worship, when we're quiet, lusts lose their luster. We become grateful for input. We become grateful. I've tasted of the goodness of God. Can you just show me that stroke one more time? Because I, 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 I think I almost have it. Can you just show me again? Because I've tasted of something that's good. And this isn't a burden to me. This is an opportunity to go deeper into what's already true. Can you just show me one more time? I long to be, I've caught a taste. I'm not resentful for input. I'm eager for it. Finally, we enjoy the work. We enjoy the work. I, uh, I can, I can uh, so I like mountain biking now. I've switched addictions. I'm over this. And I moved on. I just joke. Um, and uh, so what I remember, I remember our kids, so I like biking up a hill as much as going down a hill. And I can remember when our kids switched, when they loved mountain biking, when up was as much fun as down. I just, I, I, can, I could spot it. Some are still working on it, but it's, uh, but, but work is a delight when my heart is restful. Working in Christ to know him, I love reading my Bible. And I love studying, you know, I'll, I'll go off on a word and I'll just, uh, I have a whole bunch of stuff on my, on my computer that allows me to do word studies and I just, I just love finding where that takes me and, and then I round a corner of thought and there's a magnificent view of God that I'd never seen before. And it's like, oh, you're, you're more magnificent now than you were even half an hour ago because I was still blurred. And now I see that, and I'm, I'm working, am I? I'm just delighting. I'm just, I'm so enthralled. And every day feels like this adventure of whether it's tiring or not because quiet worship redeems my life. In conclusion, uh, Judy Graves, who works in the Lower East Side with, uh, with addicted people, says this, addiction doesn't start with drugs or alcohol. Your addiction to pornography or to food or to needing to be liked or to needing to prove something or to keep getting degrees, your addiction, it didn't start there. It starts with a broken heart and a broken world. It starts with a broken heart and just trying to manage life and just trying to, to just cope. So let me ask you, is your heart broken or is it cold? Does it feel cold? Does God seem like he's just around the corner out of sight? Does he feel like that to you? I'd like to know him, really I would. He's very far away and I don't think he wants to be around me. I've disappointed him so many times you have no idea. And the thought that he would want to be around me 
really, let's just be realistic. We've made an agreement. He can be there, I can be here, and I hope I make my way to heaven. Is your heart broken or is it cold? Do you find it hard to see God? Do you find it hard to see God? This is our punchline. To see God in and around us, we quiet our anxious hearts. I don't know how to say this more clearly. If you want to see God, do nothing. Let's stop filling our lives with so much anxious work. Hunting for God instead of discovering him by accident. Praying without lots of words. Letting our hearts be quiet. I'm finding as I get older and as I'm becoming more aware of my own addictions and my own anxiousness, anxiety, I find myself all through the day needing to pause for minutes to let my heart be quiet. It doesn't take long. I just need to let my heart be quiet again. And then when my heart is quiet, I can see him again because it's not cluttered anymore. And it's, I hate to even say the word about my heart, but it's pure. It's not perfect, but it's pure. I'm, I'm uncluttering a moment to be with my father. It's undivided devotion. Here's what's true. A pure heart is a start line, not a finish line. For the longest time, I viewed a pure heart as something that I might get to one day when I get to be really, really godly. I'm still waiting for that day. A pure heart is something we start with. It was given to us, and we all have it if you've been born again. You have a pure heart. It gets cluttered. It gets blurry. It gets muddied, yes, but it's there. And quietness helps remember what's true. It's where we start from, not where we hope to end up. So here's what I think Matthew 5, 8 is. I think it's a reboot in the middle of a journey. As we're grieving and struggling and working through things and trying to find God, trying to, trying to, trying to get a, a, a stroke that will get us to where we hope to get to, that there comes a moment where you put down the racket and you rest. Or if you're Doug, you get great setups in volleyball where you just kill it every time, just for a minute, just to remember why you love the game. But you, you put it down and you breathe. You don't meditate to no one. You worship Jesus Christ in the quietness of your heart. And there's something about a reboot that I think every one of us in this room desperately needs. We're going to be taking communion today. And uh, if we can have the worship team come out, we'll sing a song. But when we take the elements, um, I'm wanting us to be able to take them in quiet. We'll work through that in a minute. But uh, I'm wanting us to practice quietness. 
Um, so prepare your hearts for that. Let's stand together. I'd like to pray. You know what? Just stand for two minutes, please. I'd like to read something that I wasn't going to say, but I think it's helpful. Aaron White, the guy who wrote the book that we're basing this sermon series on, he, uh, he said this. He describes how some people experience quiet. I was talking about the benefits of stillness and silence in a treatment facility, and a man responded, I can't do that. Why not? I inquired. Because my mind is a dangerous neighborhood to walk around in. I said, uh, I said, no doubt it is. All of ours are. But you walk around it in it all the time already, just with your eyes shut. If you went to a dangerous neighborhood, you wouldn't wear a blindfold, would you? Sometimes our minds feel like dangerous places that are not friendly to us. God wants to restore our vision of him in those places, in our minds, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's have a moment to quiet our hearts that we can see him in places that it doesn't look like he exists. <clears throat>